Now we're going into a section where Jesus gains disciples. And we're going to see why that is so. Between sections 35, verses 35 through verses 51. Verse 51. And the Word of God says this, The next day, again, John was standing with his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak, followed, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Verse 43, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. And this is the story. This is what's going on at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with his first disciples. We have here a glimpse into what is occurring. Jesus gathers his first four disciples. So you may not know the 12 disciples, but at least after today, you'll know at least four. And what this narrative passage is doing is once more proving who Christ is. This is why it's important. It's at the front of John. It's at the beginning of the Gospel of John to once again affirm these Old Testament expectations of the Messiah. So if you read closely or you listen closely, you'll see these names that come from the mouths of the disciples. Son of God, uh, the, the one who the law prophesied about, Christ, the Messiah. You'll see these identifications because what the narrative is doing is proving once more that Jesus Christ is of God, that Jesus Christ is God. And so this narrative passage allows us to understand this, especially because the people that are saying these things are the disciples of John the Baptist. And we'll get to that in the, as we go into the, the text. So this narrative gives us some wonderful information at the, right at the front. I mean, we get some geography here. We get like 
places like Galilee, Nazareth, Bethsaida. Like, why do these, why are these even mentioned? Why are they important? None of us live in Israel. None of us are there. So why should we know these things? And it's at the front of the gospel because it becomes very important later on in the ministry of Jesus. So we get some geographical references. We get some minor biographical references to John, to, to Andrew, to, to Simon Peter. We get, we get minor information, but that becomes very much important as the gospel goes on. But these Christological titles are very important. Son of God, Messiah. And then Jesus himself identifies himself as the Son of Man. And, and what these titles prove is, is, is this Old Testament connection of fulfillment. So rather than just going in detail on what these titles are individually, we have to take them collectively and corporately and combine them together that this entire time in Jesus' ministry and before the 400-year gap in between Jesus' ministry and the last prophet of the Old Testament, people are looking for, for the Messiah. People are awaiting the return or the coming of the Messiah, and they finally get it to the max in Jesus Christ. That is why they say these things. That is why they identify them. And that is why we know Jesus to be the Son of God. And, and the chronological aspects are important too. You saw a couple of times it said the next day and the next day. So remember, we're within the first week of the ministry of Jesus. And the important aspect of these days and, and, and the week of, of Jesus is that before he does his first miracle in Cana on chapter 2, which we'll talk about next week, before he does this miracle, people are already affirming him as the Messiah. People are already believing in him because of what he has said, because of what, who he is, because of what he's done in their lives by saying, I know you. So, what we're going to end up learning at the end of all of this is identifying true discipleship. What it means to be a disciple of Christ. What it means to really believe in Christ as opposed to just know who he is. And so as we read and as we dissect the text, I want you to pay close attention to all of this because it, it shows us the person of Jesus and we get to understand his work at a deeper level. So let's start back. Let's dive straight into the text. I will try to finish this section today. If not, we have next week, and we'll just keep pushing it until we, we fully understand as much as we can in, in the text. So in John chapter 1, verse 35 and 36, here's one of the first parts that I want you to examine. So the actual first part is from 35 through verse 42, but these beginning verses in 35 and 36 are, are crucial. It's the last time we see... John the Baptist in this chapter, and he's kind of appeared like oddly throughout this entire chapter in, in the beginning verses of the prologue, and then he jumps back in towards the end of, of verse 20, uh, 28 to 29. He does this big Christological claim of the Lamb of God in verse 29, and in verse 35 through 36, he appears for the final time in this chapter. Now, what is he doing? If you remember verse 29, if you just go quickly back to verse 29, you'll see what, what he ends up saying. And it says, the Behold, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here John is, 
is affirming who Christ is. But look at verse 35. He's doing this again. The next day, again, John was standing with the two of his disciples. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, what? Behold. He screamed it out again. I won't scream it again like I did last week because I think I scared a couple of people. Uh, but, but he screams it out again. Behold the Lamb of God. Now what is, God, what is John doing here? Well, first off, we get this chronological aspect again. The next day, which is the third day of Jesus' ministry. The first two days we saw last week. But it's giving us this, this next day and final fulfillment of John's ministry. John was here to show us Christ. And in verse 29, the distinct difference between verse 29 and verses 35 and 36 is that in verse 29, he is standing before crowds. He is standing before everybody and he sees Jesus walking towards him. In verse 35 and 36, who's he standing with? Two disciples. And where is Jesus walking, towards him or around him? Jesus is walking past him. Jesus is already in ministry role. He's already functioning in his ministry, and he's walking past him. And that's where John says and looks at him in this, this verb of intent, gazing. It's not just like, oh, I, I, I saw him pass by. No, it was John was gazing at Jesus with all of his heart, with all of his attention looking at him, and as he sees him walk by, he tells his two disciples, this is the Lamb of God. See, it's not, he's not before a crowd anymore. And what he's doing here is showing us the cost not only of leadership, but the cost of discipleship. He is telling his disciples once more, all this time that we have spent together, you guys being my disciples, all this time that I've invested in you, I want you to look at him now. I want you to gaze upon him. And you can rest assured that by the reaction of the disciples, they understood the teaching of John. John was never pointing them to him. John wasn't the center of attention this entire time. John was always preparing his disciples for the person of Jesus, And these first four disciples are proof of what the ministry of John was doing. He was exercising his leadership, but he was exercising his role as a prophet proclaiming Jesus Christ. This is the important thing here. It is Jesus. And so when he does this, he says, the Lamb of God and his disciples see who he's speaking about. And John continues and focuses their attention on who he is. Once again, what is John doing? Putting the attention off himself, putting his disciples, his closest people, pointing them to Christ Jesus, and then letting them know once more, this is who? The Lamb of God. Proving his work. He came here to take away the sin, his sacrificial atonement. He is letting them know what Christ is going to do. Letting him know, letting his disciples know that he is the lamb, this propitiatory lamb that we see in Isaiah, that we will see again in the, in the epistles of Paul. He is letting them know this is the one who's going to wipe away the sin of the world, who will sacrifice himself, the one whom the prophet has already mentioned. And he is of God. So here, he is not only sent from God, 
God is not only the initiator, but he also is of God. He is of the same essence of God, which is the genitive construction of the word of God. This is God. And his disciples hear, and his disciples follow. So those two verses set this up, set up this wonderful scene of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? Now, if you continue on the narrative, the second section here in, from verses 37 through 42, it shows us the reaction. Look at verse 37. I love this. This, this gets me excited. So if I get a little bit excited, don't, don't criticize me. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and what did they do? They followed. They first heard. Second, they, once again, they heard. And then they, one final time, they, and then they followed. What did they hear? They heard the gospel. They heard Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. They didn't hear a fancy sermon. They didn't hear a, a, a well-laid-out sermon on who the person Jesus Christ. They just heard the title. And they understood what that title meant because they knew Scripture. They knew what the prophet said. And so upon hearing, upon listening, you remember what we read in Isaiah chapter 32? They will listen they will hear, their ears will be opened to receive. And they heard, and their immediate knee-jerk reaction was to follow. They left their teacher, John the Baptist, and they immediately went after Jesus Christ. This introduces us to the marks of true discipleship. Hearing the gospel, hearing the word, and then following the true leader, following the true master, following the true teacher, which is Jesus Christ. I like verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? It's a deep theological reflection here. Jesus isn't asking them just a basic question. Jesus is interrupting their train of thought, getting them to really examine what it is they're looking for. What are you looking for? What are you seeking? What are you after? And remember, why are the days important? Because Jesus hasn't really done much that we know of up until that moment. He hasn't been raising the dead. He hasn't been healing the sick. He hasn't. So there's really no reason to, in a certain extent, follow Jesus, especially if you're with John the Baptist. So Jesus is asking them to reflect upon their decision to follow. What are you looking for? That question resonates in 21st century America, in 21st century Vida Abundante. As you come to Christ, what are you looking for? You know, to them, they could have been like, well, we, we just want, we want our Messiah, or we want this, or we want, uh, we want the, the kingdom to be established. 
Remember, all the, all the Jewish people, all the Jewish nation, that's what they anticipated, a king, a Messiah to crush the Roman Empire. They wanted victory. They wanted, they wanted somebody to come in like, like, a, like, a, like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commander and, and just take over. They wanted their king. They wanted their kingdom. So Jesus asked them, what do you want? Is that what you want? And friends, this, this becomes a very real question as we enter into church, as we become these disciples that we're seeking after Christ. We should understand and ask ourselves this very same question for a deep theological thought. What am I looking for Jesus for? What, is he going to like heal my marriage? Is he going to make me better? Is he going to make me rich? Am I not going to get sick anymore? What am I looking for Jesus for? Why am I coming to him? And his disciples answered correctly. What do his disciples say? Or the prior to becoming disciples, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi. Did they answer the question? Did they evade the question? I don't think they did. It may look and sound evasive. It may be a little bit like they're, they don't want to answer the question and they're kind of going, uh, beating around the bush, but they come directly and they say, we are looking for our teacher." We are looking for the rabbi, and you are him. They're looking for what we've anticipated. These people were under the law. These people were, 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 were guided in the law uh, of the prophets of, uh, of Moses. They knew the word of God, and they followed John the Baptist because he was their teacher. But now they see a greater teacher. This is incredible how it's always juxtaposed with, with, or Jesus is always contrasted with these different personalities in the Bible. And Jesus is far and above John the Baptist. They said, you're the rabbi. And they call him rabbi. And what else do they say? Which means, teacher, where are you staying? What they really wanted to know is, how can we follow you? The word staying doesn't project the, 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 the right power of the, of the Greek verb to remain. They, they didn't just want to go visit Jesus. They didn't just want to go see his house. Let me see, where, let me see your crib. They, they didn't want to just look and glance and be like, okay, cool, man. So if we, if we ever need anything, we know where to find you. That's not what they were looking for. They said, teacher. They said, rabbi which implies someone who can give instruction at the highest level. And they said, where are you staying? Because we want to stay wherever you stay. We want to remain where you remain. We want to abide where you abide. They want to be instructed. They want to be taught. They want to receive from their teacher because that's what they anticipated. And they do not want to leave. You see, the implications here of discipleship not only is hearing and then following, but it also is staying. Thank you for following along. You guys are awesome. We get it, we're getting the, the steps of discipleship within this narrative passage. Again, they heard, they followed, and then they stayed. They didn't just want a little bit of Jesus. They wanted everything. They wanted him to be their teacher. They wanted to remain with 
Him. And that's why the, it goes on to say in verse 39, He said to them, Come! I love this, this, this word because Jesus isn't doing a friendly invitation. This, this, this come, this, this word is an imperative from Jesus, a divine imperative, and saying, Come then! Come to me! And you will see. And so as Jesus invites them, they, they're not only invited to be at the house. They're not only invited to stay with him for a little bit. But this come and see is typical of the rest of the book of John. And we'll keep repeating this as we go through it in John chapter 3 and John chapter 5 and in John chapter 6 and even in John chapter 10 where this come and see isn't an invitation to come look. It's an invitation to salvation. Jesus here is bringing salvation to them and connecting them to his fulfillment of messianic prophecy. I am here and I'm here to stay and those who come after me, those who follow me, are also part of my new covenant family. They came and they were a, they were a part of Jesus Christ in his new messianic role because he is the light of the world. You see, if they did not have their eyes open the way Isaiah the prophet says in, in Isaiah chapter 32, if they did not have their ears opened the way the prophet said, they could not see because others in John, especially the first chapter, what did other people do? They didn't see. They rejected him. They didn't understand him. But as soon as these people heard, they followed. They stayed. And then Jesus said, come. And they came and they were saved because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He comes to reveal himself to all people. And this is what Jesus does. He satisfies their need. So as, for, as, as soon as these two disciples come and hear and follow and stay, what they encounter is salvation and satisfaction from all of their longings. Remember, friends, this is an anticipation in every Jewish person. They are seeking the Messiah. They're seeking their Savior. They're yearning for that. And at this moment with Jesus, they were technically looking for a teacher, but they found their Savior. Jesus Christ satisfies His disciples. And so in this, we begin to see the steps of discipleship. And what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. These first two disciples, if you've noticed, they, they're not even named yet. It doesn't matter who they are. It matters what they do. They hear. They follow. They stay. They become saved by their Savior. Because they see. Because they came. Because they responded to the call of Jesus Christ. And they went after him. They remained there in the, some technical little details that the text gives us that to the 10th hour or roughly 4 p.m. Uh, that just goes to show that they were there late, but they were not going to leave. It's like those guests that you kind of just, oh, got to put the kids to bed. It's 6 p.m. <laughs> but they stayed. 
They loved being with their teacher. They learned. They remained. They saw. Most importantly, they were in the presence of Christ. All of this little detail of the 10th hour, we could kind of just like read past it, but it entails all of this. It implies everything. They, they didn't just go and look at the Messiah. They didn't just stay there for hours just looking. They were there listening. They were there being taught. And they were learning from the presence of Christ. This is why it's so important as we move on in the text, the reaction and the action of these disciples. That's why we called all the members, the new members of here, of, of Vida Buenante, we call them to action, not to passivity. We call them to work, to action, not only in the church, but also outside of the church. Look at verse 40 through verse 42. Many people think that this is the fourth day because there's a little conjunction here. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus, here's the first introduction, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, now the reason that's just kind of important, it's John is writing lay, way later on in the first century. So we're, we're past the year 70 Peter's already died. So John understands that his readers and his audience know who Peter is. And so he says, this is Andrew, Peter's brother. Andrew's the first introduction that we get to one of the first disciples that were with John the Baptist that heard and that came to Jesus on the next day. So the next day it says, he, 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 um, in verse 40, he heard him speak, and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, his fir he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found who? The Messiah. And th I love that John always does this. He puts in, if your Bible has this in parentheses, which means Christ, it's John's way of helping the reader. So people, if people don't know what the word Messiah means, John says, well, this is what it means. It means Christ in Greek, which means the anointed one. The, 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 the Greek audience would know what this means by, by seeing the translation. It's the anointed one. The anointed one, like in the Old Testament, the kings that were anointed in Samuel and in the book of Kings, they were anointed of God. They were anointed by God for the service of him. Jesus is saying, I mean, Andrew is saying, that's him? He's the Christ? This is the anticipation of, of the prophets and what we have seen looking for and what we've been looking for as Israel. He is this king, and he found his brother, Simon. This is what I love of discipleship. One of the immediate reactions that we get from Andrew is that he goes out to look for his brother, so the fact that it says found doesn't just mean that, that he's, he, he saw him at a, in a corner somewhere or around the house and said, oh, there he is. No, he was looking. He was searching. He was out and about looking for his brother to do what? To bring him to Jesus. The first reaction the, disciple, the first disciple gets is to preach to his family. In Andrew, we find our very first missionary, our very first evangelist to preach to those he loves. And he tells them, this is Christ. 
This is the Christ. Part of the discipleship then, after reviewing what we've just been through, not only hears, not only follows, not only remains, not only be believes and is saved, but then preaches the gospel. Discipleship and the calls to action in discipleship imply preaching. And who are you going to preach to? Your family. Who does he preach to first? His family. He goes to the core of, his, of, of the people that surround him without worrying so much about the world at that moment, but he goes to his very own family to bring them to Jesus, especially in the way that he does because he identifies Jesus as the Christ, Christos, the anointed one. And so Peter, in the same lines, is looking for this anointed one. And so Peter comes. And Andrew brings his brother before the Messiah. This Old Testament expectation. The one who is anointed. And what happens? In verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, that, that's, that's kind of a weird story in a sense. You, you brings this guy, and Jesus doesn't know who he is, or, or Andrew doesn't think he knows who he is, but Jesus knows who he is because he calls him by his name. Once again, we get this divine attribute working in, the, in Jesus. God, man, the, and, and the Son of God working together and he sees him. If you remember that verb that we mentioned in the beginning with John the Baptist, that John the Baptist saw Jesus walking around. This was John the Baptist gazing upon Jesus and now Jesus does the same thing to Peter and he lets Peter know that I know you. I know you. And I also know your future. And so in doing this, Jesus takes on the characteristic of God. Jesus himself takes on the divine role of Yahweh in the Old Testament. What does God do in the Old Testament? Do you remember that person Jacob? That, that deceitful person Jacob that did a lot of trickery in his life. And once he wrestled with the Lord, what does God do in Jacob's life? Changes his name. What does he change his name to? Israel. Jacob means deceit. Israel are part of the promised covenant of, pe of people of God. This is now the Israel of God. God gives him a new name because he sees his future. And these are the people. These will be the people of God. And in doing so, he not only establishes the patriarchy of Jacob, now Israel, but now he does the same thing by changing the name of, 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 of Simon. He changes his name immediately to Peter. And, and, and when it says, you will be called Peter, it's in the verb, it's, it's a future tense, it's in the future, because Peter means, what does Peter mean? 
rock, stone. And if we examine Peter's life throughout his ministry, Peter didn't act like a stone. Peter didn't act like the rock of which his name implied. What did Peter act like? Jesus called him the devil. Jesus called him Satan. I'm like, wait, but you just called him Peter and you're calling him Satan later on? What Jesus is doing is identifying the present. I know you and I know your future. And in the future, you will be the rock of my church. Upon what Jesus says, upon where the gates of hell cannot prevail against my church. This is Jesus looking at his disciples and showing them their mission. Didn't matter what Peter did. It didn't matter what Peter was. Jesus showed him their mission. What did Peter do up until this point? The only thing Peter did was listen to his brother Andrew. Yo, I found the Messiah. And he's like, oh, cool, let me go see him. The only thing Peter did was go. And Jesus You are now Peter, the future rock of our church. Without any qualifications. There was no, like, resume. There was no, well, how much do you know? What do you know about the Old Testament? None of that mattered. Jesus chose him because Jesus wanted to. This is Jesus at work. This is God at work doesn't choose the best, doesn't necessarily have to choose the best, doesn't necessarily have to choose the most qualified. He chooses whom he pleases to work in in order to achieve his goal. And though Peter failed time and time again, eventually he stands up in Acts chapter 2 and he begins to preach. And the Spirit of God comes upon Peter and takes over. And Jesus is like, that's my rock. That's the rock. It's not the guy that was afraid of a little girl. It's not the guy that denied him. It's the guy that stood up and saved thousands of people by the preaching of the word. So this is his divine prerogative to choose his disciples and show them what they will do and how they will do it. Divine sign of, dis- of discipleship is that you are called by God. You are called. You find your identity. The disciple finds his identity in his calling, being called by God. Jesus points Peter to his mission and makes and affirms his calling of discipleship. So what are we learning so far in discipleship? I'm repeating this because I want you to get it. We're learning disciples here. We're learning disciples, especially here. They remain. They follow they, 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 their eyes are open. They are saved. They are also called to the mission, called in their way of life. We keep going now. The second section is very important. I didn't think I was going to get to it, but we'll move forward. Verse 43 now, we're in part two. We have an introduction of two more disciples. From verse 43... Through verse 44, we see this, in, this other introduction of, of time, the next day. So we're entering the fifth day here of Jesus' ministry. 
Jesus decided to go to Galilee. We have a geographical explanation, I mean, a geographical insight of Galilee. And, and I'll explain to that a, a little bit more as we, as we read. And there he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So what's the difference here? In the first two disciples, the disciples came to him. In, in, the, in the second part, we get this divine calling again. Jesus finalized that with Peter and is introducing that to some future disciples where Jesus himself does the calling. And he says, follow me, another divine imperative, another mandate to come after me. And now Philip in verse 44 was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So here we have them all together, Andrew, Peter, and Philip, most likely all followers of John the Baptist, because they were, they were all from the same area. Here, what becomes important is to understand what Jesus is doing and where he's doing it. In Galilee, we have a reference here because obviously for the people reading the, the Gospel of John, they understand and they knew who ruled over Galilee. You and I know who ruled over Galilee because we know the gospel of Luke, which was Tetrarch, the Herod the Tetrarch of Antipas, who, what did he do? He married his brother's wife. He asked John if it was okay, and John was like, no, that's not right. And then his, 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 the, the, brother, the brother's wife, Heroditus, what does she say? I want John's head. And so what ends up happening in Galilee, where they ruled John the Baptist is beheaded. So all of this becomes part of the narrative now. That, that's Galilee. That's what happened at Galilee. One of the things that happened at Galilee. It's funny that Luke calls him the conniving fox. Herod is a conniving fox. So in Galilee, we see the movement of Jesus. And, and we see Jesus being called the Galilean. Why is he called the Galilean? Because that's where his ministry, some of his ministry was taking place. What's interesting here is that Galilee is about 100 miles north of where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So we have Jesus born all the way in the south in Bethlehem and about 100 miles up in Bethsaida, as we, as we will see. And then in the area of Galilee, he's far away from his hometown. But whose hometown is it? It's the hometown of his disciples. Bethsaida here is important because it reminds us of who the disciples were. Bethsaida literally means house of fishing. So the first people Jesus calls are fishermen. That's where we get the concept of all the disciples being fishermen. Well, it's not all of them. It's some of them are called from Bethsaida and some of them are fishermen. And they come to him by the calling of God. Jesus Christ. These simple men come to Jesus and respond to his call. So in verse 43, Jesus says, follow me, Philip. And what does Philip do? He goes right after Jesus. Look at what verse 45 says. In verse 45, Philip immediately found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Again, what do disciples do? They preach. They tell people about Jesus. 
Disciples don't just follow the the movement of, of being with the Messiah. They're just not in awe of the Messiah. And they're like, I made it, I made it, I made it, I'm cool, I'm saved. No, they spread the word. Jesus is worth the, 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 the spit, the breath. Jesus is worth our efforts to share to others who he is. And who, do he, who does he find? He finds this guy named Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel isn't one of the 12 disciples or apostles, but he, he goes to show what an average disciple will look like. As he finds Nathaniel in verse 45, he goes up to him and he tells him this title again of Moses, the law from whom we see in the law and from the prophets, and he says he's from Nazareth in verse 45. And once again, geography. Again, Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth has a population of less than 2,000 people in Jesus' time. To, to put that in perspective, Unity has about 4,000 students right here. So Nazareth is really an insignificant town, and we're going to learn a whole lot more about Nazareth as we go on in the narrative, but it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. So people are like, when, when people see or hear that he comes from Nazareth, they're immediately going to say, well, what does Nathaniel say? What good comes from Nazareth? Nothing. Nazareth is, is no one goes to Nazareth. There's no reason for it. And so Nathaniel goes to show immediately his rejection or his doubt, but will also prove his faithfulness by Jesus calling him to serve him. Verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Philip repeats the same words that Jesus said to his first disciples, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus, once again, saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed whom there is no deceit. What does that mean? What did Jesus see in Nathanael? Didn't Nathanael just reject the concept of the Messiah coming from Nazareth? Well, in, in, in Nathanael's case, he is this Israelite that carries no deceit. And those descriptions are very important. Because Israel, once again, in the Old Testament, is who? The old Jacob. The old Jacob was a deceitful person. Changed of his name to Israel. Now Jesus sees who Nathaniel truly is, and he, and he identifies him and tells him that you are a true Israelite because there is no deceit in you, and you are searching for the Messiah truthfully. This is what Jesus is saying to him without even knowing him. He didn't know Peter. He doesn't even know Nathaniel. But in his divinity, he sees them and he calls them by who they are. So what does this do in Nathaniel's case? This astonishes him. This is like, whoa, you know me and that should scare us. Because Jesus knows his disciples. Jesus knows who you are. Jesus knows everything about you. He tells Nathaniel, Nathaniel, you're a true Israelite, and there is no deceit in you. A model disciple. A disciple that will show what it means to follow Christ. What would Jesus say about you? 
Do you believe Jesus knows who you are? If Jesus is God, and God is Jesus, do you not think Jesus knows everything about you, everything that goes on in your brain, everything that you think about, everything that you say, everything that you say behind closed doors when you get in an argument with your wife? She slams the door and you should have never married you. Jesus hears. Jesus knows. Jesus knows his disciples and can identify them. The emphasis is more real in verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, what's the answer right there? It's the realization. It's the confession. Okay, I get it. You are the teacher. You are the rabbi. You are what? The son of God. Look at how Nathanael answers. You are the rabbi. You are the son of God. And you are the king of Israel. Was Jesus wrong in saying that he was a true Israelite? As soon as he understood what Jesus was calling him to do, he identified him in the right way. Jesus knew him, and the response of Nathaniel goes to show that true disciples know who Jesus is, especially when they are called. They are not lazy. They are not passive. They go hard after Jesus. Nathaniel isn't one of the 12, even though some people think he, his, his true name is Bartholomew, which is mentioned in, in the Gospel of Mark, but there's no straight link in the Gospels for that. But what Nathaniel does do is emphasize the common disciple, or most importantly, the future disciple. Because Jesus is getting his 12, his immediate 12 here, but there are other disciples who will follow. It's not just the 12, it's all of us. So friends, we, we'll go over verse 50 to 51 next week, but here's a recap of what discipleship truly is. Disciples what? Here. Disciples what? Follow. Disciples what? They stay. They remain. Disciples what? Are saved. Disciples what? What do they do? Disciples what? Know who Christ is. There's going to be a big difference between disciples and those that followed Jesus in the crowd. And so next week, we're going to finalize this section, verses 50 to 51, and we're going to talk about the Differences between discipleship and those that just follow Jesus at a distance. My prayer for you this morning is that you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's stand up. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for looking at us your word and this narrative just taught us that you saw your disciples, average people from Bethsaida, 
the house of fishermen. Those most likely that no one else would look at. Father, but for some reason, you look at us. Jesus sees us. And he shows us who we will be in him. Father, nothing good was in us for you to choose us and to save us. But by your grace and your love and your will, you have done so. I pray, Lord, that we react the way the first four disciples did as soon as they knew who Jesus was. As soon as, soon as they heard who Jesus was. Father, I pray that you raise disciples in this church. Disciples that are not passive, but actively sharing the gospel in their community. And living a model life the way Nathaniel shows us, Father, that we can live that model life here on earth as well. Father, take us home in safety and keep us encouraged in your word that though everything around us may seem uncertain, we are your children and you are our God and you are our King. And because of that, we know that you rule well. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.